Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things Primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder Mark Sisson, special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, and conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Primal Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, and anti-aging supplement, available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, here's your host, Mark Sisson. Hey everyone, Mark Sisson here. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, coming to you from the beautiful Primal Blueprint Podcast studios in Malibu, where every day is awesome. Um, let's see, I've, uh, I've had a saying for a while that started out being fairly glib, but now has turned into something that uh, has become um, almost dogmatic in my world, and that is, everyone I know, and everyone you know, has a bad medical story. Now, people might have a good medical story, and they might have had a life-saving medical story, but virtually everyone I know has a bad medical story, something that went wrong, uh, a misdiagnosis, uh, a poor treatment, um, sepsis after the fact, uh, and, the, and the list is almost infinite, right? So today, we're going to be talking about the medical system, and if it's in fact possible that it could, that it can even be fixed. Um, and my guest today is Chris Cresser. Chris is the CEO of the Cresser Institute, the co-director of the California Center for Functional Medicine. He's also the creator of chriscresser.com and is the New York Times best-selling author of The Paleo Cure. Chris was named one of the 100 most influential people in health and fitness by greatest.com, and his blog is one of the top-ranked natural health websites in the world. Welcome, Chris. Mark, it's a pleasure to be with you. What's going on, man? It's smoky. That's no. Oh, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, you're in Berkeley, right? Yeah, we're uh, we're on an evacuation alert. I don't think it's going to happen, but there's you know wildfire risk right around here, and it's you know I open my door and it smells like a campfire. Oh wow! It's tragic. You know, a lot of our friends in Santa Rosa are down here, staying with you know uh, some friends down here, and it's it's just crazy. It's really devastating. No, it's amazing. I just uh, spoke to to my R and D people who are up in Hillsburg. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're again un- under constant vigilance. Yeah, and I know it well because in Malibu, every couple of years, sure, you know, I look out my 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 backyard, and there's a massive fire that's a mile away or whatever, and it's just it's becoming unfortunately part of of living in California, yeah, uh, particularly during the dry seasons. But uh, yeah, give me an earthquake any day. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, we're we're right on top of the San Andreas Fault, so there's a lot of ways we could go out. Yeah. We just gotta enjoy life as it as it comes, right? I mean, that's the bottom line, right? Take every day, one day at a time, and and do what you got to do. Yeah. All right. So you have a new book. It's called Unconventional Medicine, mm-hmm. and it kind of looks at first of all uh, the dire state of affairs that yep. uh, the U.S. Uh, uh, the American health system finds itself in now. The outrageous amount of money spent on health we call it health care it's not really it's right sick sick care mm-hmm. um and uh you know this this alarming statistic and we can quote them uh you know day in and day out one in two americans has a chronic disease one in four has multiple chronic diseases 27 percent of kids yeah now have a chronic disease that's just heartbreaking 
heartbreaking yeah. and scary. And yeah. chronic disease is responsible for seven out of every 10 deaths. Not 7%, but 70%, seven out yeah. of every 10 deaths. Yeah. yeah. Um, so t- tell me a little bit about, I mean, you, look, you're the functional medicine guy. So you and I have been talking about how we can maybe attack this um, on an individual level, like one physician at a time, seeing right. the light, um, getting trained in some in some functional medicine uh, arena, and then being able to incorporate some of that training into um, an allopathic um, you know setting. What? But but how do we leverage this? And I guess that's just, that's the nature of the book. So tell me a little bit about the book and what the impetus was for it. Yeah. So as you said, chronic disease is the biggest problem we face now by far, and it wasn't always that way. You know, in, in 1900, the top three causes of death were were typhoid, tuberculosis, and pneumonia. So these were all acute infectious diseases. And other reasons that people would go to the doctor at that point were also acute, like a broken bone or an appendicitis or a gallbladder attack. And the approach to those conditions was pretty straightforward. It was, you know, set the bone in a cast or remove the appendix or gallbladder. And then later, once we developed antibiotics, give, give one of those for the infection. So it was... One problem, one doctor, one treatment, you're done. Pretty, pretty all, medi- all medicine pretty was emergency medicine. Uh, absolutely. And, and, and it excels at, and still excels at that. I mean, if I get hit by a bus, take me to the hospital. I don't want to go get acupuncture or functional medicine at that point. You know, I want to go to the hospital. But now that's not the problem. As you said, seven out of every 10 deaths is caused by chronic disease. And the conventional medicine system has completely failed to address chronic disease. And that's, that's, that was really the impetus of this book because every year that passes, it just gets worse, not better. I mean, it, the, it's, we're, we're projected to spend almost $50 trillion by 2030 on chronic disease. And that, that's really kind of an incom- incomprehensible number for most people, including me, to get my head around. But to put it in perspective, it's equivalent to the GDP of the six largest economies in the world. Right. As yeah. we say in Malibu, some people can live on that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, the, and, and the, here's the saddest thing. I mean, you, you, we said over a quarter of kids now have chronic disease, and that's up from just 13% in 1994. So in just 25 years, we've had a more than doubling of kids with chronic disease. And I know you're a parent, Mark. I'm a parent. That's heartbreaking. And the worst part is it's going to get it's supposed to get worse before it gets better. So to this today's generation of kids, our kids, is the first in which they're expected to live shorter lifespans than their parents. And lifespan, for as long as we've been measuring it in the modern world, has just been continually increasing, uh, with the exception of a few pandemics here and there, little temporary blips. But for the first time ever since we've been measuring lifespan, uh, our kids are expected to live shorter lifespans on average. So we need to do something the 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 way we're approaching chronic disease in conventional medicine, which is just based on suppressing symptoms with drugs and applying band-aids to to the problem, is isn't working. And that's the impetus for this book. It's all great stuff. It's crazy stuff. It's tough to get your mind around. I mean, I've made this kind of blanket, another blanket statement. I seem to be making a lot of blanket statements recently. But <laughs> the, uh, this one goes like this: If everybody ate according to the paleo primal ancestral health model we could lop a trillion dollars off the annual uh health budget in this country every year would you agree with that kind of a statement i would definitely agree with that and that's actually one of the premises of the book i mean you you asked in your first question you know what how do we scale this 
beyond just you know individual doctors treating individual patients. My argument is we need a solution that has three components. One is an ancestral diet and lifestyle, which you just pointed out could save easily a third of the healthcare budget if people just followed that approach. The second piece is functional medicine, and we can talk more about that. And then the third piece is a collaborative practice model. Um, you know, right now the the conventional medicine is based on the expert model of care, where the idea is the expert just gives the information to the patient. The patient then just acts on that information, and you know goes away and makes the changes. Uh, end of the story. But we we know that's not actually what happens. Um, first of all, the average appointment time for a prime with a primary care provider is ten to twelve minutes. And some studies actually suggest that newer doctors are spending as little as eight minutes with a patient. And the average amount of time the patient gets to speak before they're interrupted by the doctor is just 12 seconds. <laughs> so if, if someone goes into the doctor and they've got multiple chronic diseases, which many people do, and they're taking multiple medications, which many people are, and then they're presenting with a whole new set of symptoms I mean, do we honestly think that anything meaningful can happen in a 10-minute period there? There's barely enough time to say hello and then write a few prescriptions. Uh, There's no time to talk about the most important interventions, which are diet, lifestyle, and behavior change, and then also getting to the root of the problem, you know, actually looking at the pathologies or mechanisms that underlie disease instead of just trying to suppress the symptoms. Exactly. That was one of the reasons that I started the Primal Health Coach program, and I know you have a similar program you're introducing as well, which basically unburdens the physician of having to spend the time educating the patient on lifestyle practices, but empowers a physician's assistant, a nurse, uh, a fitness trainer to um, to take on that responsibility with the oversight of a physician above. Sure. Um, you know, certainly with the with the endorsement of the program, but but the actual time in the trenches is much better spent by somebody who's not expecting to be compensated at such a grand scale as the as the lead physician would be. Yeah, and who has the, the training, uh, is trained in principles of behavior change and knows the right diet to recommend because they actually have been extensively educated there. You know, most physicians only receive one class in nutrition in medical school, and it's usually based on, you know, textbooks that were written in the 1970s or 80s. Um and so, I mean, that, that in and of itself is one of the scariest. If you stop and think about that, yeah. if you stop and think that most of the research done in, in medicine over the past 20 years has looked at uh, dietary inputs as uh, at the very obtuse level of just risk factors. Yeah. Um, m- most of the research has looked at um, lifestyle inputs, exercise and risk reduction for across the board. Um, whether it's low fat, high fat, whether it's low carb, high carb, whether it's Mediterranean blue zone, most of the research goes into, um, looking at what the effect of the food is on the patient. And yet to think that regardless of what way of eating you select as a physician, you, you bury your head in the sand when it comes to the dietary etiology of chronic disease. It's just, it's so mind blowing. It is so archaic and so like small thinking yeah it's that it's it, it, it just i can't even uh, like if you transported me from another planet <laughs> down here and said this is how it happened even though we know across the board 
that these lifestyle factors, diet, exercise, sleep, sun exposure, are the major factors in maintaining good health. Yeah. Um, the people who are entrusted with, with overseeing your health don't know that, and they're being ke- that, that information is being withheld from them in their training. It's absolute insanity. We know now that 85% of the risk of chronic disease comes down to environmental factors, 85%. So we are completely ignoring, more or less, in our current system, 85% of the risk factors for chronic disease. And we're just trying to patch up the problem with, with drugs. I mean, it's a little bit like if, you have, if you're in a boat and it's leaking, you can bail water you know, from the boat and it will slow it from sinking a little bit. But obviously, the solution is to plug the holes. And so, you know, drugs are like bailing water and the diet, lifestyle and behavior change are like actually plugging up the holes. And, you know, to be fair, doctors, they're doing their best. They're victims of the current system as well. I mean, they're overworked. They see they have 2,500 patients on average on their roster. They're expected to see an enormous number of patients every day uh, and throughout the week. And um, they, as you said, Mark, they weren't trained uh, with this kind of information. So I, I totally agree with you that we need to um, have more health coaches and nutritionists and people who are able to be on the front lines working intensively with people on the diet, lifestyle, and behavior change piece. So doctors can focus on what doctors should be focused on, you know, the things that they're trained to do exclusively within their scope of practice, uh, because there just will never be enough doctors to address this problem and they aren't really even the right people to do it well certainly not at the rate we're going yeah well that, that i mean that there's a predicted to be a shortage of fifty-two thousand primary care providers by the year 2025 and that's with this current number of you know 2500 patients per doctor which is everybody agrees even in the conventional medicine world way too many way too much yeah, yeah. you can't form relationships with that many patients that are going to be supportive of long-term meaningful change, uh, you know, lifestyle change. It might even work, work against, it might be, you know, anti-relationship forming. It might even like piss the patient yeah. off to, to have this intimate setting where you're, you know, every orifice and every aspect of your life is being explored. And then seven minutes later, I'm out of here. Right. And, and then on, on your way out the door, you get a, oh, uh, make sure to keep up your healthy diet. You know, so, so the message there is, I will spend, you know, we'll spend 99% of the 10 to 12 minutes, which is totally inadequate anyways, talking about, you know, drugs and, and, and um, how we're going to manage the, the symptoms with drugs. And then as you're walking out the door, we'll give you a recommendation for, you know, diet and lifestyle change. So patients aren't stupid. They get that those, um, those recommendations are are secondary and are not really seriously you know, being seriously given. Um, the other important thing to point out here is our how our um, payment models influence what treatments the patients are are going to do. So there's a, a, a story in my book that I tell that actually came from another book where uh, the author of this other book went into the doctor. He had high cholesterol, and the doctor was like, "Look." You can uh, follow a healthy diet. You know, you can eat more uh, fruits and vegetables and cut out these, you know, pr- processed and refined foods from your diet, uh, or you can take a statin. So these were pre- these were presented as sort of equivalent choices, which is ridiculous because obviously, even if they lead to a similar reduction in cholesterol number, they're not equivalent. Um, and the doctor, you know, and, and the patient said, "Well, you know, I thought about that and." Uh, 
nobody, nobody's going to pay for the, you know, health coach I'll need to figure out this new diet and they're not going to pay for their groceries and they're not going to pay for my gym membership. But guess what? The, my insurance company is going to cover the cost of the statin. So I guess I'll just take the statin. And, and it's easier because it's one pill a day and I'm done. Absolutely. So the, the way that the, the system is set up across the board supports these Band-Aid type of interventions and it's not set up to support the interventions that would have the biggest impact. And that's a real problem as well. I heard um, one of the initial um, aspects of the ACA was a rating system for your physician um, to, to sort of a merit system where you rated your physician from one to five. Uh, but it sort of fell out of favor really quickly when physicians were getting scores of one and two because they wouldn't prescribe painkillers to, right. to the patients who were demanding right. them. Right. And again, this is not, you know, I, I don't mean to be critical of physicians. Most physicians I know are really uh, good people who went into medicine for the right reasons to help people. And they're just as frustrated as everybody else by how this system is working. Uh, and, pay, you know, we've, we've, uh, educated patients to be passive recipients of drugs as well. And, you know, we're the, one of two countries in the whole world that allows direct-to-consumer drug advertising. And it's been shown that, that, that this advertising drives requests for medications from patients. And that a lot of times uh, practitioners, doctors know that the medication is not appropriate for the patient when they come in to request it, but they just get you know, the patient is so persistent that uh, more often than not, the doctor will eventually just cave in and, and, and prescribe the drug. So, Well, one uh, of the classics is, uh, of course, uh, somebody insisting that they get prescribed antibiotics for, uh, for a cold a viral or a flu. infection. Yeah, yeah, for a viral infection, yeah. 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 And then swear that that's, that's how three days later they got rid of it. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a real problem. But, I, I mean, uh, the message of the book is actually – one of hope because I think we are getting reaching an inflection point where even in the you know staunchest most conservative uh, areas of conventional medical establishment we've realized that this is you know we're on a sinking ship and it's not working and we have to make significant changes and there are some some you know some really good signs like uh, you know Mark Hyman. Uh, he's been a pioneer in the world of functional medicine, and he uh, was recently tapped by the Cleveland Clinic to start a center for functional medicine there. So Cleveland Clinic is obviously a very prestigious uh, organization, world-renowned, and <clears throat> they now have a center for functional medicine. It started out in a tiny little space, but they quickly outgrew it. Uh, within a few months, they'd moved to uh, the entire second floor of the Glickman Tower, which also houses the Cleveland Clinic Urology and Cardiovascular Units, which are the number one, respectively, in their fields in the world. And they have a wait list of 2,600 patients from nine countries around the world. Uh, they scaled up to 16 clinicians and 50 employees, and they're just growing like gangbusters. And about a quarter of the patients who are coming um, to the center are completely new to the Cleveland Clinic. So that shows that functional medicine is actually driving demand there. Now, who's paying for this? Is this cash only? Uh, it's within the Cleveland Clinic. They have their, their same payment models and systems that they use there. Now, I think they are actually taking insurance and they're exploring ways uh, for uh, and uh, that's part of their mission is to actually explore ways that functional medicine can be integrated into the insurance model 
and they're doing uh, research, population-based studies, and even randomized controlled trials on functional medicine, and they're integrating functional medicine and nutrition into the Lerner College of Medicine curricula, which is the Cleveland Clinic Medical School. So I think, uh, I mean, right now, one of the problems is that, and I think you were alluding to this, is functional medicine, uh, at least up front, is or or on the surface appears to be more expensive because it's not typically covered by insurance. And so patients often have to, have to pay out of pocket for at least some of the costs. But uh, it's really important to understand that this is a little bit of an illusion. If you actually uh, look at the real cost of, of conventional care and you remove the subsidies, you know, the insurance subsidy, it's pretty easy to see how functional medicine in the long term, will be much more cost-effective than conventional medicine. A perfect example is type 2 diabetes. The average, it costs about $14,000 a year to treat the average patient with type 2 diabetes. Is that right? Is that a, That's a huge number. I thought it was a big number. I didn't realize it was that big. $14,000 a year. I mean, this is in the literature. Um, and there are 25-plus million diagnosed Type 2 diabetes cases in the country. Yeah, 100 million Americans have either diabetes or prediabetes. So prediabetes out, you know, three times the number of cases. And 88% of those people with prediabetes don't know that they have it, which is a huge issue because it's the average time for progression from prediabetes to full-fledged type 2 diabetes is just five years. So... Um, just this one disease, $14,000, and the age of diagnosis is, is dropping um, like a rock. Every year it gets earlier and earlier. So imagine someone who's 40 years old, diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, and let's say they live to 80 years old because we have these fantastic modern technologies that can keep people alive for, in some ways, a lot longer. Including prosthetics? Yeah. Including prosthetic legs when they get an amputation? Absolutely. So let's say they live another 40 years. Um, that's over half a million dollars to care for that one patient with type two diabetes. And, and a lot of those costs are opaque because, you know, the, the, the individual isn't paying them, but society at large is paying them. You know, we are paying those costs. We're paying them through taxes. We're paying them through premiums. We're paying them, um, through, uh, you know, uh, all kinds of hidden, uh, expenditures and yeah, lost lost wages, lost uh, wages, lost productivity, and it, it's their real cost whether we see them in our you know day to day life or not. And I think if you extend that math um, with with the growing number of people with prediabetes and diabetes, that diabetes alone will bankrupt our sick care system in the you know in the next twenty to thirty years unless we intervene. And you and I have talked about this offline over gluten free beers in the past. <laughs> but basically um, diabetes and I've you don't say this because you're a nice guy. I, I say diabetes <laughs> is a stupid disease. No one needs to get it. And yeah. anyone who has it can literally rid themselves of the condition. I don't even really call diabetes type 2 diabetes a disease. I call it a condition. It's a it's a state it's a state of being where blood sugars are out of whack and where you're not able you've got insulin resistance and a few other things, all of which is fixable with diet and exercise. Yeah. Uh, in in I'm going to say 95% of cases. And so to think that that by by just making different choices in your life and being willing to put a little bit of of work in uh, that you could rid yourself of this disease that otherwise is going to cost, if not you, somebody else a half a million dollars over your lifetime um, is going to result in 
tremendous uh, eventual discomfort, including the possibility of loss of eyesight, of neuropathies, of of uh, of loss of of digital limbs, um, and all because of a assumption that carbohydrates are required for for everyone to live a, a, a wonderful yeah. life. Yeah, and let's take that. I mean, let's let's dig in there even a little more. So, it, let's say it's a half million dollars over that patient's lifetime, and and people are complaining about functional medicine being expensive. So let, let's say let's say we spend ten thousand. Let's say I give you a check for ten thousand dollars, and we say let's do all the testing we need to do on this patient, and let's set them up with a health coach. Let's even give them a, a coupon to go buy you know two thousand dollars worth of groceries or get a subscription to Thrive Market and, you know, uh, Whole yeah. Foods or something. And uh, they can work with a health coach on a weekly basis that will come and into their house and clean out their pantry and show them how to cook and get them on a physical activity routine and, you know, be an advocate and a guide for them. We c- You would still have money left over from that $10,000. Uh, and, and that person's life would be transformed. You could cure diabetes uh, we can actually use that word i mean yeah we can use that term you can sure. cure it for ten thousand dollars yep. instead of spending uh, and by the way that's and, and you're and you're being very generous Absolutely. with ten thousand dollars for less a lot of your readers yeah. and my readers you can do it for nothing yeah. but you can do it for nothing but but like you and i know i mean we because we both we have coaching programs where i could i could send somebody in a, in a person's house and in two months for a cost of about seventeen hundred bucks put them through that entire uh, regimen and get them set up on a path to success and then literally say, okay, you graduated, you're done. You know exactly what to do now. The rest is up to you. And by the way, if you don't do it, it's your own damn yeah, fault. Absolutely. And $10,000 is like the Cadillac luxury premium version, but I'm just trying to make a point. Like, No, big fun because you still save $490,000 in the process. Absolutely. Yeah. So I actually believe that this this model that we're talking about here is just going to be how medicine is practiced eventually. And you know, there's two ways to get there. One is is the the easier way, and one is the harder way. And unfortunately, it will probably be the harder way, where things are going to get so bad, um, and the system will be so clearly and obviously unsustainable that we'll be forced into approaching chronic conditions from this perspective because it will be clear that there's no other alternative. Now, I'm still holding out. Um, I'm an optimist at heart, so I'm still Yeah, you are. I'm still holding yeah, out, still are. holding out for the the easy way and that's one of the, you know, that's one of the reasons I wrote this book, but and why I do what I do. But one way or the other, I think we'll get there because there is no other way. I'm I'm sort of I'm not going to be say that I'm the opposite, but I'm I'm a real libertarian, like every man for himself, every woman for himself here, for herself. This is about you know you got to take charge of your own health because if you if you deign to put it in the hands of of a of a trained expert uh, in this day and age, you are putting yourself on that uh, on that assembly line that leads to. Um, you know, to some some pain and suffering. I just I, I won't tell my story here, but I just got off that that uh, medical treadmill a couple of weeks ago, where I almost I almost died, and um, from a simple wow, I didn't diagnostic procedure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, speaking of which, diagnostics. Let's talk about diagnostics yeah. um, because that seems to be one of those things where medicine has become, uh, you know, really part of it is is. Um, this quantified self movement where everything is about the numbers, but the other part of it seems to be cover your ass. Like we're going to do more and more tests so that we can, we can cover ourselves in the event that we miss something or 
we misdiagnose. Or, and, you know, that comes back to standard of care, like what is the appropriate standard of care. But let's talk about diagnostic. What do you think about the concept of diagnostics these days? Well, I think it, uh, paradoxically – uh, there's both too much and too little testing in conventional medicine. So there's no doubt that there's an excess of unnecessary procedures. And those are often, you know, part of the reason for that is financial because some, sometimes that's how doctors get compensated. And with uh, an average of $150,000 of debt, when, when that, you know, they graduate from medical school, it's, it's no joke. It's hard to actually make a living sometimes, even with the salary that the, the typical salary that a doctor makes. Um, but on the other hand, I think there's too little testing. And what I mean, what I mean by that is, uh, so you and I both agree, Mark, that if, if we think of like, I, I have a model in my book, I call it the functional medicine systems model. And it's a way of thinking about how does health, health and disease progress. And if at the very core of that model is the interaction between our environment and our and, and our genes. And I argue that that's the root of all disease is when we make the wrong choices, the wrong diet, you know, physical activity, sleep, stress management, lifestyle, et cetera, that triggers, that interacts with genetic predispositions that we have. And that leads to, to disease. But the next ring out from there is what I call pathologies or underlying mechanisms. Now, these are, these are, these come before disease and they come before symptoms. They're, they're the actual mechanisms that give rise to disease. So let me use an example to make this more clear. Imagine a patient goes to the doctor and they have, and they, they have the symptoms which we call irritable bowel syndrome now, or IBS. IBS is, is kind of a nonsense diagnosis. It's just a description of the symptoms. You, know? tell yeah, me they, they, you go to the doctor and you say, doctor, I have gas and bloating and you know, constipation or diarrhea and pain. And, and the doctor goes, okay, well, you have irritable bowel syndrome. And you say, wait, I just told you that. You know, that's not yeah, any extra yeah. information. Yeah. But anyways, yeah. let's say they, you, they have IBS. So the conventional treatment for IBS is all based on symptom management. So they might prescribe analgesics for the pain. They might prescribe pro-motility agents if they have constipation or antidiarrheals if they have diarrhea, antidepressants uh, for the psychological you know, comorbidities that a lot of people with IBS have. And there are a few other drugs that are typically prescribed, but none of them actually address the root cause, the underlying mechanisms that are making the bowel irritable in the first place. In functional medicine, we approach that patient differently. We say, okay, why is the bowel malfunctioning? Why is it irritable? We're gonna first we're gonna look at the diet and lifestyle factors, of course. That's fundamental. But sometimes even when you address those, it doesn't necessarily resolve because the previous years of not making the right choices have led to certain pathologies. So those could be things like SIBO, too much bacteria in the small intestine, or a yeast overgrowth, or uh, it could be undiagnosed parasite infection, or they could be a dis, you know a, an HPA axis issue that's leading to a gut brain axis problem, and we can test for these conditions pretty easily, and then we can treat them pretty effectively. And that patient we can actually cure IBS, so there's they don't have to spend a lifetime taking unnecessary medication that can cause all kinds of other side effects, which of course then require more medications and so on and so forth. So it's just a fundamentally different approach and that does require more testing, but it's the kind of testing that's geared toward 
actually resolving the root cause instead of just, you know, more procedures that are going to lead to more medications. Right. I mean, one of my favorites in that in that same genre would be the uh, proton pump inhibitors. Yes. You know, which like uh, it's a short term solution that makes the that makes the problem worse. Only ever approved for two weeks. <laughs> and some people have been taking them for three decades. Exactly. Yeah. And every every week there's another study about how they're they're collect, connected to kidney disease, liver disease, increased risk of infection, increased risk of nutrient deficiency because they inhibit, you know, we need stomach acid to absorb nutrients. Um, we need stomach acid to fight off infections from, you know, from pathogens and things we might encounter in food and water. Uh, you know, stomach acid is not was not just put there to give us heartburn. <laughs> yeah. But on a night-to-night basis, if I feel better taking my, my proton pump inhibitor, then then I'm going to keep doing it. Yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate because there's um, there are so many, I, I mean, I have a lot of patients with GERD, and most often it's related to SIBO, it's related to, you know, carbohydrates that are not being digested or broken down properly, and that leads to overgrowth of uh, bad bacteria. And it's really easily treated, in many cases, by a low-carb diet and by addressing the SIBO. And then the GERD goes away, and you don't have to take PPIs that are going to put you at risk for even worse conditions as you get older. But again, the awareness of these things is so low, and it's not because it's not in the research literature. I mean, you know this, Mark. We can go in the research literature, and we can find all kinds of studies connecting SIBO and disrupted gut microbiome and all the other pathologies I mentioned with IBS. We can find studies connecting SIBO uh, to GERD. We can find all kinds of research supporting the connection of these underlying causes and pathologies with all chronic diseases, and yet the conventional system is still overwhelmingly focused on symptom suppression with drugs because it's just, that's the paradigm that we have. Well, and we can't, and you can't, you know, it's tough to go up against $150 million advertising budget on the nightly news. Absolutely. I mean, the, the pharmaceutical industry is second only to the oil industry in terms of the money that it generates. And they spend more money per member of Congress on lobbying than just about any other industry. So there are obviously some pretty significant conflicts of interest here. Right. Yeah. So in my case, um, I had IBS. I had mm-hmm. GERD. Um, I even had a little bit of arthritis. And all of it went away, and I'm going to say magically, when I gave up grains. Mm-hmm. It was just unbelievable how, and that was to me, that was my big epiphany because I'd gone through this evolution of introducing healthier fats into my diet and getting a little bit more attention to fiber and, and cutting back on my training. And this goes back 20 years ago, but it wasn't until I gave up grains that the last piece of the puzzle for me really fell into place. And I thought, holy crap, this is unbelievable. My this this IBS that that literally dictated every move I made every day of my life yeah. from the age of fourteen to forty seven disappeared. Yeah, uh, you know the GERD that I just thought, well, I'm sitting wrong on the airplane, or I'm sleeping, or I, or I, you know, I, I ate too late at night, and I'm I feel like I'm throwing up in my sleep or whatever it was was all a result of what I was eating, not a result of some genetic malfunction, not a result of some bad luck. Uh, not a result of some something I, uh, you know, contracted, uh, you know, uh, infectiously. It was all a result of choices that I was making in my diet. Absolutely. And that's that's even true for more serious conditions. Like, I mean, not that GERD can be just, ab- and IBS can be absolutely life-altering. I don't want to diminish them in any way. We know IBS now is the second leading cause of people missing work 
behind the common cold. So it's a it's a real problem. But then you have conditions like Alzheimer's disease, which are fatal, and autoimmune diseases, which can be you know uh, life threatening for sure. And the I'd say that the dominant paradigm is even more entrenched in those conditions. The idea with Alzheimer's has always been bad luck, right? There, there's nothing you can do about yeah, it. Yeah, if my parents had it, then my I'm doomed. Parents to get had it. it I've got this yet. gene. There's nothing can yeah. be done. In 25 years of drug development. There hasn't been a single drug in all of that time that can even slow, much less reverse the progression of Alzheimer's. So conventional medicine literally has nothing to offer. Um, and autoimmune disease, now one in six Americans now has an autoimmune disease, 50 million people. Um, it's, it's just both of those conditions are, are epidemic. And uh, there are now lots of, there's now lots of research and lots of stories of people who have uh, been able to slow the progression of Alzheimer's and even reverse it in some cases. Dr. Dale Bredesen, just, uh, who's a life, uh, lifelong Alzheimer's physician and researcher, uh, just published a book uh, about this. I think it's called um, The End of Alzheimer's. And he, he's a very interesting guy. I know him pretty well. He used to, you know, he worked on the bench in a lab for many years and he was studying Alzheimer's from the conventional perspective, trying to find that silver bullet drug that would, you know, fix everything. And on his own, without knowing anything about the ancestral approach or anything about functional medicine, he reached the same conclusions. He, he just by thinking it through, like the, the Alzheimer's is, is skyrocketing. And we know that that's not, there's not enough time for our genes to have changed significantly, you know, in the period uh, that I, Alzheimer's has skyrocketed. So there must be environmental causes. And then he looked at hunter-gatherer societies that, you know, still um, contemporary hunter-gatherers and saw that Alzheimer's was extremely rare, if not non-existent in those populations. So that told him that there must be something unique to the modern diet and lifestyle that is contributing to this. And he went further and further down that path. And he defined three different types of Alzheimer's. Um, one is inflammatory, which of course would be contributed to by our modern inflammatory diet and lifestyle. The second is atrophic, meaning lacking growth factors, um, which again would be contributed to by our modern diet and lifestyle. And the third is toxic, toxins like heavy metals and even mold that can alter uh, brain chemistry in a way that mimics Alzheimer's. And he's having miraculous results uh, reversing cognitive decline and Alzheimer's in people that would otherwise have no hope. And then we have people like Dr. Terry Walls, who both you and I know, Mark, and we've seen the we've seen in person the results of her story. She was in a wheelchair. Um, she was diagnosed with MS, and it quickly went into uh, the secondary MS progressive form. Her prognosis was poor. You know, she was uh, in in her mind uh, or in the doctor's mind destined for a shorter lifespan. And she fortunately was not the kind of person that just accepted that. She hit the research because she knew that there was a 20 to 30 year lag time between, you know, s studies and, and actually trickling down into uh, practice. And she came up with an autoimmune protocol, which she's since written extensively about, that took her from being almost incapacitated in a wheelchair to walking and even doing an 18 mile bike ride in less than 12 months. 
yeah, it's a pretty miraculous recovery. And, 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 and that has always, that MS diagnosis has always been a, like one of the scariest ones you can get because it's a, it's, it's viewed as a, uh, a slow progressive decline. Yeah, you just waste away. Nothing. Yeah. 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 Alzheimer's and MS, I'd have to put at the top of the list in terms of ways that I would not want to go out. Like, right. you know, I'd rather get, you know, eaten by a great white shark than yeah. have Alzheimer's <laughs> disease. You know, send me out into the waves like one last time. And no, uh, exactly. Exactly. Know? Yeah. Hey, so what, uh, speaking of Alzheimer's and, um, and, um, and I've got a book, you know, the keto reset diet. We talk a little, a uh, lot of it, a lot of about ketones and yeah. and the um, not you just I, weight you loss. You and I have and, talked about that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so what about what's the latest thinking on uh, ketones and Alzheimer's? Uh, I think it. I mean, it's certainly in my practice. Um, I don't treat patients with you know full fledged Alzheimer's, but I treat a lot of people with cognitive decline and have been diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's, and that is. One of the go-to strategies that I use, in addition to the functional medicine tools, you know, looking at it from the uh, Dr. Bredesen perspective, I've seen some pretty pretty miraculous turnarounds with a keto type of diet in, in people that, uh, you know, I remember one patient, she was, you know, 84, 85, had been diagnosed with uh, early onset Alzheimer's, was living with her uh, daughter, and her daughter's husband, who who were the ones who brought her in to see me, and um, you know she was at the point where she was forgetting who her daughter was occasionally, and um, and her grandkids, and just you know uh, forgetting her keys and all of the classic signs. And uh, within about three to four, three and a half weeks of going on a ketogenic diet, she had a remarkable turnaround. I mean, she was way more lucid. Uh, way less forgetful, way better uh, cognitive function overall. And, uh, you know, she had a hard time sticking with it, especially when her daughter got busy and wasn't able to provide the, the, and you could just see it. As soon as the carbohydrates would come back in, she would start to decline and then they would tighten up, you know, and and get on the ball again and take them out and she would start to get better. And it was just this, you know, it happened so many times that it just became abundantly obvious that that was the primary driver for her so yeah. yeah i mean that's actually an interesting test you've you've created a little uh you know cycling test where you do three weeks on three weeks off and you see the you notice the difference absolutely yeah and, every and time. It, it became so clear to them and you know i'm I, I think it has some really interesting applications for immune regulation as well especially if you add in some intermittent fasting which i know you talk a lot about mark and you know therapeutic fasting combined with ketosis and and then uh, if you cycle that, I think it can have some pretty remarkable immune benefits. So we've been exploring it more in our, in our autoimmune patients. And of course, then there's the, the more obvious application with, uh, di- you know, diabetics and, uh, people who are overweight and developing metabolic issues. So I, I would use it quite a bit in my practice and I think it has a lot of potential. And I was really glad to see you write a book about that because I know you've noodled with that for many years. And when I was experimenting with it you were the guy that i called you know to talk about it with yeah no it's it's um it's exciting it's it's still a it's still the you know the wild west um it's a new frontier this whole keto thing and that's why in my case i i call it the keto reset because i use it as a tool as a strategy in an otherwise fairly low carb primal eating plan i'm not suggesting people live the rest of their life in Ketosis. I'm just suggesting that you use this once in a while, the same way somebody would do maybe a cleanse, right. you know, an annual cleanse right. or something. 
So it's it's a tool. I think that's moving on. Enough about my book. Let's get back to your book. <laughs> so, um, unconventional medicine is the name of the book. Now, who's who's the who's your who did you write it for? Who's your reader? So there are three three uh, audiences. One is someone who's a healthcare practitioner who's working within the conventional system, who's burned out and drained by the style of medicine that's become really prevalent in primary care settings. They're tired of these short appointments. They're tired of managing symptoms with drugs, and they want to offer. Uh, you know, deeper healing and transformation to their patients, but they're not really sure how to go about doing that. So that's number one. Number two would be healthcare practitioners working outside of the conventional system. So this is a really big audience. This includes not only acupuncturists, chiropractors, naturopaths, and people like that, but also health coaches, nutritionists, you know, personal trainers, this growing um, number of of people who are working intensively with patients on the diet and behavior and lifestyle. But in that case, uh, those folks might want to upgrade their skills to get better results. They might be seeking a more systematic framework uh, rather than just, you know, in a lot of cases, it can be just kind of whack-a-mole, you know, like take this, do that. And there's no systematic methodology. Uh, And they might be wanting to incorporate more functional medicine or uh, ancestral diet and lifestyle into their work. And then the last uh, audience is is what I call uh, citizen scientists and health activists. So of course, these are the people that read our blogs, Mark, who listen to our podcasts, who are often better educated than most doctors when it comes to nutrition and and lifestyle change. And these people might be trying to address a chronic disease or health problem of their own, or maybe one of their family members. They're familiar with functional medicine and and these principles and things we've been talking about. um, And they're passionate about reinventing healthcare and they want to to, um, learn more about this and play some role in spreading the message. Cool. Now, when is it available? It's available on November 7th, um, and it'll, it'll be on Amazon and paperback and Kindle and audiobook formats. Okay, awesome. We'll have links to it um, on, our, on our page here. Um, let's see, anything else you want to cover today, Chris? I think that's it. I, I would just end by saying, you know, uh, it can seem overwhelming with uh, the, the forces that we're up against here. We've got, you know, deeply entrenched um, financial interests that, that are invested in maintaining the status quo. We've got a medical paradigm that is really mismatched with the, the biggest challenge that we face. But, uh, uh, you know, to, to paraphrase Margaret Mead, all, all of the biggest changes in history have come from just a small group of really committed people moving it forward. And that's all we really need to make a difference. So that's, that's why I wrote this book. Well, I, I love, and thank you for writing the book. And I love that message. And I'm, I'm the, I'm the cynic. You're the hopeful one. And I love that about you, Chris. Um, so, uh, yeah, unconventional medicine is the name of the book. Uh, Chris Kresser takes a look at a huge problem we have in this country with, uh, with the medical system and offers some solutions. So I highly recommend getting a hold of it as soon as you possibly can. And uh, don't forget, you can always order early. You can pre-order Amazon um, in advance of the book coming out November 6th. Yeah. Absolutely. We've got some, some great bonuses too uh, for pre-order. And um, Mark, congrats on your book, by the way. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah. Um, all right. And I look forward to seeing you at some event real soon, Chris. I'm sure we will. Take care, Mark. Thanks. Cool, man. All right. All right. Thanks for joining us. All right. And listeners, thank you for joining us today. We'll see you next time on the Primal Blueprint Podcast. 
Hi folks, Mark Sisson here, and I'd like to tell you about my biggest undertaking yet, the Primal Health Coach Program. My mission is to create a global network of primal health coaches to help transform the health and consciousness of our communities into ones of optimal wellness and happiness. Becoming a primal health coach empowers you to take your primal passions to the next level and embark on a career you love, inspiring others to live lives of vitality and lasting wellness. If you dream of a career in health coaching but have been held back by worries such as the investment of time and money, then I encourage you to hesitate no longer. Health coaching is the fastest growing specialty in all of coaching. And we've created an online education program that allows you to learn from the comfort of your own home and at your own pace. The world needs primal health coaches to provide a blend of ancestral wellness solutions to the modern health crisis. The world needs you. Are you ready to become one of the world's most trusted, experienced, and knowledgeable health coaches? To learn more about this online certification program and to take the first step toward a career you love, visit primalhealthcoach.com and subscribe.